Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. Have we gotten to this point where people wake up every morning looking for something to be offended about? I live in this place called the real world, and I understand what is going to happen. Her story is, I was trying to scare him away. At the same time, she shot him point blank in the face. Okay, that's not exactly a warning shot. The Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. Coming up next, Squirrel. And now, WTMJ's Scott Boris. Wednesday, February 12th, the way we go. It is 12.09, with you until 3 o'clock. Jeff continues his vacation in parts unknown. Right out of the gate, I need to share something with you, an email that um, I received earlier this morning, and it ties into something that we and all of you, I say we, the collective we, us at the station, you as loyal listeners, something we did last Friday. Gene Miller had been spearheading our latest WTMJ Cares initiative uh, in order to raise awareness about heart disease is such a such a such a ubiquitous disease. So many different elements, so many different things classified as heart disease, and and it plagues so many people. And with your generosity, it all culminated our our latest initiative, raising awareness and raising money for the American Heart Association, the Southeast Wisconsin chapter. With your generosity, on Friday morning we held a radiothon. And over $15,000 at last count was the amount raised. We did that. You did that. We. You did that in two hours. And during the two hours, Steve was off. Scafidi was off on Friday. So was myself and Billstad doing the show. And if you listened, if you caught it, during the two-hour radiothon, we had a couple of callers, a couple of listeners called in to just kind of spontaneously share their story of their heart ailment and what they have gone through, what they are going through, and, and, and shared their thanks to all of you for your generosity and what we were doing at the station to raise awareness. One of the callers we got on Friday morning was Ed. It was Ed from Milwaukee. And Ed called up and talked about his heart failure, talked about uh, what is called an LVAD pump that he lives on and needed to keep his heart going. And I'm not going to get into the, the, the scientific nature of what an LVAD pump is, but trust me, without it, um, Ed would not be with us. And Ed called up, and we discussed his journey and his struggles, and he shared with us that he was on a heart transplant list. He was waiting for that call. Doesn't know when that call is going to happen. And it was very emotional for him, as it was for a lot of people that called up. And uh, got a little choked up when he talked about the way he found out about the situation and and uh, the, the way his life has now been altered as he waits for a new heart, which is just one of the real fascinating things uh, from somebody like me who has never dealt with something like that, to just be, you go about your life, but at any minute, at any moment, the phone call could come from the transplant team saying, Ed, Scott, whatever, whomever, we've got an organ, we've got a heart, you got to come in because you're going to get your transplant today, tonight. 
you have only a you know a few hours worth of a time frame in order to get that transplant and have it take. So he shared that story, and I think because of the raw emotion in his voice and the description that he shared and, and the wording that he used, I think it really struck it struck a chord with me. I think I can speak for Eric the same thing. And I, I know that it struck a chord with many of you because um, w- with Ed's story, the phone started ringing and, 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 and you and, and the generosity and all of us, we did some really good things on Friday. And, and I was so appreciative to Ed and some of the other folks that, uh, uh, that, that called in to share their spontaneously, not solicited. They called up to just to share their story. Well, guess what? This morning at 9.17 a.m., got the following email. Good morning. You interviewed my father, Ed, on your show last week regarding his heart failure and the LVAD pump that he lives on. Last night, my father got the call we've been waiting for for over a year now and has received his new heart this morning. He will no longer live on the Elvad, and if all goes well, we'll be back to living his life with this gift from God very soon. My mother and I wanted to reach out to you to let you know. We are grateful for your station's efforts to raise awareness and funding for such an important cause. Sincerely, Vincent S. Vincent is the son of Ed. And if you don't get goosebumps hearing that, and... What Vincent was doing, certainly uh, he's grateful to the station and the station's efforts. He's thanking, he's thanking all of you as well. A 262 texter just says, Ed was the call that got me to donate after he hung up. And I'm happy to report that as of this morning, I called Vincent up. We talked off the air. He said that the family got the call late last night and uh, around, I think he said around 3 a.m. this morning, um, the procedure was over at St. Luke's top-notch facility, obviously, for, for procedures like this. Uh, around 3 a.m. this morning, or in the overnight hours, Ed got his new heart. Uh, he is doing well. He is recovering. The heart looks to be in good shape, and everything is functioning as they, as, as best they can hope. Still, obviously, there's a window of time where you have to monitor things, and it'll be a while before he's up and at him, like always, but... How about that? And that, again, speaks just to the overall, well, we're all in this together, right, type sentiment. And the the magic of a radio and the ability to come on and to share a story, in this case it was Ed, for us just to have a conversation, all of us gathered around the radio, listening to it, talking about it, and um, it just it just is remarkable that here... In, what four, uh, four, five days after he came on our airwaves and talked with all of us about what he was going through, and just uh, five, four, five days after all of you so generously, uh, you know, were moved, many of you, by what Ed said to give to our radiothon, to give to the American Heart Association here in southeastern Wisconsin, in less than a week, who'd have thunk it? In less than a week, if we could have, if we could have told Ed on Friday morning when he said, "I'm just waiting for my heart," Ed, in less than a week you're going to have your heart, and he'd been waiting for a year and a half. That's uh, pretty special stuff. So again, 
Uh, I assume Ed's not listening right now as he's uh, sitting at St. Luke's Hospital. But to him and to his son, Vincent, his wife and the family, congratulations. We'll see if, you know, in a few weeks, once he's back at it and, and up and, and roaming around, we'll see if we can't catch up with Ed uh, maybe later in the month. Would love to just see how that all played out. A remarkable story. And because you were part of it on Friday, I wanted to bring that to you to start off this show. When we come back, we'll get into some of the topics of the day. Don't forget, after 1 o'clock, Craig Gilbert, political reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, will break down what happened last night in New Hampshire. He's just a really smart guy. And if I get an opportunity on these radio airwaves, I like to talk to smart people. And um, he is as good as they come. We'll talk about everything going on uh, on the primary side of things for the Democrats yeah, last night, moving ahead to Nevada in a couple of weeks. But when we come back, when we come back, moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas, what if your son or daughter, the student in your life, pass something along through text, through social media, to their friends, off hours, not during school, let's even say on the weekend, and what they did, the school found out about, decided to punish them again it wasn't on school property had nothing to do with school the classroom whatsoever they're on their own time and they pass along some rather gratuitous messaging school finds out about it wants to punish them should they we'll talk about that when we come back on wtmj i'm scott in for jeff this is jeff wagner on wtmj Real quick, I uh, I forgot to mention, we've got a feature up on the website about Ed. Um, if you just go to WTMJ.com, and you'll see it's one of our top stories right now. The headline, WTMJ Cares, Heart Failure Victim Gets New Heart Days After Joining Our American Heart Association Radiothon. Go there. You can read the story. You can read the email that his son sent to us this morning. You can actually go back and listen to Ed's call. Uh, Jay Sorgi, our digital guru, it was great to put up a story and pull some of that audio. So, And some of you have been really great on the text line as well. Um, uh, the 414, so happy for Ed, and a reminder to sign your donor, uh, you know, the donor part of your driver's license. So incredible. Maybe all those listeners prayed at the same time. MC from South Milwaukee says, God bless Ed. Um, I didn't get a chance to donate to the WTMJ Telethon because, because we have a 32-year-old family member that needs a new heart as well, and we are donating. Uh, to uh, to Leo. I truly appreciate all that you folks have done and continue to do for us listeners. Hugs to all of you. Well, that's kind of you to say. But uh, for those of you who want to just read the story, hear the audio, simply go to WTMJ.com and you'll see that as one of our top stories right now. Shares Ed's story and puts it in context of what we were doing on Friday. And like I say, we'll, we'll see if we can't uh, give Ed a call again in a couple of weeks when he's feeling up to it and we can kind of Put a nice little ribbon and bow on that remarkable story. All right. This is an interesting one. This is an interesting one. And at the at the root cause or at the at the at the root, at the heart of it all, the question is where do you draw the line when it comes to schools disciplining students? Does it simply end when they walk off the school property, when they are off the campus, so to speak? 
do schools lose their ability, their right, everybody loves the word right, do they then lose the right to discipline students? Okay? Because this is a story, and you have to think about this, and you have young people in your life, grandkids, sons, daughters, whatever, students in your life. Everybody's on social media. I'm not going to make a sweeping generalization that all kids say things and do things on social media that are eyebrow-raising, because that's not the case. But many do. They're young. They're stupid, right? This is the story out of Ann Arbor, Michigan. And as I tell you these details, I want you to weigh in on this one at 855-616-1620, on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is the school in the wrong? Does the school have the right, we love debating that, does the school have the right to discipline these students? There's four students. Two are facing expulsion. Two have been suspended, although they have returned to class right now while this is working its way through the court system. This group of four students was on Snapchat. You know what Snapchat is? You put a little something up there. It's a short little video. What's what's the time frame on Snapchat? Six, five seconds? Eight seconds? Ten seconds? Oh, you can be as long as you want. I thought there was a time frame to it. Well, anyway, it's up on Snapchat. It's a social media platform. You can post something, and, and you can have group. You know, it's like you have group texts. You send everybody the same text and inst- all that stuff. You do the same thing with Snapchat. Well, this incident... Involving snap, uh, this particular Snapchat group of these four students was brought to the school district's attention late January. And here's what happens. The Snapchat occurred on a Sunday evening between friends and acquaintances, according to the report and the news release. Apparently, there were African-American and Caucasian children in this of the four And they were using inappropriate and offensive language in a joking manner and in the context of immature banter among friends, according to the release. Here are the details. The conversation did not occur at the school, did not occur at a school event, or on any school equipment. While all the children are embarrassed by their language, it does not justify, according to the lawyer for the kids, It does not justify the school's rush to judgment and overreaction. Four of these kids, as I say, have filed a federal lawsuit claiming the school district should not be able to discipline them for sending these racist messages to fellow students in a Snapchat group. Okay? The school, according to the attorney, is acting outside the scope of its authority, has no legal right to impose the discipline carried out, and has violated our clients' constitutional rights by their reckless and hasty rush to judgment. What do you think about this one? 855-616-1620. Does the school, does any school, you could just think about this broadly, does any school have the right to discipline its students in an instance where they're not, again, they're not using school equipment, they're not on school property, this was something done in their homes on a privately owned phone, their privately owned phones, on a non-school day. There is, 
very little that is related to the school except for the fact that they're all classmates. So they all go to the same school. That's how they know each other, let's say. 855-616-1620. Because it also raises a larger question that we can get to then as well. But right now... Does the school have any standing, in your opinion? You don't have to be a legal scholar. You can just say, no, butt out. Or yes, look, because they're classmates, the schools have to do in this day and age what's best for the schools. 855-616-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We'll go to you when we come back on WTMJ. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. People are saying, well, what, what was the mess? All right, here was the message as you process this story. The Snapchat messages were provided to uh, the Ann Arbor, the Ann Arbor School, Michigan News. It took, play, uh, took place in a previously existing Snapchat group. The group's history showed several students were added to the group prior to a number of racist messages being exchanged in a lengthy and somewhat incoherent chat, primarily between two individuals. Here we go. Maybe this makes a difference for you. New members were introduced to the group with one individual posting, quote, my N-word, followed by another individual who wrote, sup, N-word. The name of the group also was changed to racist, featuring two gorilla emojis. The same two individuals, there's four of them, two of the kids continued to share messages with the group, with one individual posting messages including, quote, white power, and, quote, the South will rise again. Again, this is messaging on Snapchat between four students, four high school students, N-word, and obviously other racist terminology, innuendo. Yet, not at school, not during school, not on school phones, if they would have school phones, not on school property, not using school equipment. The only connection to the school is that they are classmates, okay? But the high school, the district, the powers that be say this represents, quote, an act of racism that created harm to all of our students, especially students of color. And again, two are facing suspension, two facing uh, expulsion, and this is going to be going to the courts because they're saying the school has zero right to step in and intercede like this. Is that the case? Is that true? 855-616-1620. The text line is heating up. We've opened phone lines as well. Uh, Todd and others, hang on the line. We'll come to you in a moment. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Oh, man. <laughs> Kyle, Kyle and I are... <laughs> this is a tough one. If only we had a lawyer in the building. Call up Wagner. Where is he? Yeah. Why are you why are you bothering me on my vacation? We need a legal ruling on this one. All right. Before I get to the text line, let's go to the phones. Let's start with Todd in Greenfield. Hi, Todd. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. This is a tricky one because I don't know. I'm going back and forth on this. But go ahead. Your, your thoughts, Todd. All right. Here's my thought. Okay. I was thinking about my 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 niece who has a husband who was a teacher at a school 
and it was a failing school, and he was an awesome teacher, and he thought he could make a difference there, but he was disrespected, and the kids would just call him names, and you wouldn't believe the stuff that he went under. Mm-hmm. But the kids didn't get reprimanded for anything, so the, everybody misbehaved in the school. Parents, you got a lot of one-parent families. They're not around to find out what the kids are doing. You know, they caught these kids. Look at the kids' lives. Most of their life is spent where? In school. They come home for a couple hours and go to sleep. But most of their life is in school. They represent the school body in or out of school. If they condone this behavior, then just think of what message that's going to send. Okay, so let me just let me get this straight. So you're saying even though, again, this is Snapchat among four students, mm-hmm. even though mm-hmm. this was done off school property, not on school equipment, not during school hours, and really has nothing to do with the school whatsoever other than their schoolmates, uh, that's how they know each other, you still think Mm -hmm. that the school should and has standing to discipline them? Uh, Well, they need to bring the parents into play for sure. But they they do need to discipline them because if they if they be misbehave like this, they represent the other kids and it can influence the other kids to do things like that if they let it go. So then, where would you? I guess okay, all right. I'll I'll, I'll walk with you on this one. But then, where do you draw the line? So are you saying? And I don't want to put words in your mouth. So I'll just. But are you saying that the school, in essence, has what jurisdiction over kids? as long as they're enrolled in that school. So what if something happened on summer vacation, let's say? Can they still punish them for something that happens during summer vacation? Where do you draw the line where you would say, no, this is not a school-related issue? They have no standing. Well, it's a big gray area, but I think that's more of an individual case, like if it was with a family out of, out of city or whatever. But when you're mixing with a bunch of different students, that's when it comes into play with schools being involved. Thanks for the call, Todd. I appreciate you weighing in. 855-616-1620. I, I just keep coming back to the fact that this the school may mean well, you know, and, and, and what was it? In, in the letter to parents, the superintendent said, administrators conducted an investigation and determined the... See, I also want to know, and I don't have the answer here. I want to know, how how did the school... Superintendent, how did the district, how did the school board, how did they find out about it? I mean, did a parent turn them in? 855-616-1620. Because, again, these are four kids in a Snapchat group. But anyway, so, again, the school says, after the investigation, that we have determined that the incident represents an act of racism that created harm to all of our students, especially students of color. Now, Todd brings up a question saying, well, do they not represent all the students? Aren't these kids representative of the school as long as they are enrolled there and thereby you know, open to punishment from said school? 855-616-1620. This is a tough one. It is. Uh, the text line, heating up. The 715 texter, is the school still going to be blamed for whatever the students did? If so, then they have a right to be involved. If not, stay out of it. If it isn't their responsibility, leave it to the parents or courts if necessary. Well, it will not be in the courts. See, that's the thing. Why Why does the school feel it needed to get involved? I mean, 
I understand you want to fight racism, and these were racist comments. I'm not. No one's debating that. Why would the school decide to take this on? Why go down that path? Um, 608 texter. I think the school should not punish the children in this incident. It's the parents' responsibility. The problem is, in this day and age, parents don't take it upon themselves to punish or direct their children in a better path. 414. Legally, the school does not have the right to punish the kids. On the other hand, if my child was caught up sending racist messages, the last thing I'm going to do is stand up for their right to say those things with a lawsuit. Hmm? 715. The school has no grounds to punish the kids in this case. Just because they're classmates, uh, just because they are classmates does not give them the right to punish them. They have school, uh, the, they've had seen the school overstep their boundaries plain and simple. All right, other side of the coin, 563 texter. Absolutely, the school can do something. Just like I represent the place I work for, even when I'm not working. If I post something on social media, if I post something on social media on my own time that had no connection to my place of employment, I would still expect disciplinary action if it was something they wouldn't stand behind. That is the next step I want to take this to because that is the logical okay I'm trying to compare I'm trying to compare that situation to our situation or your situation as an adult 8556161620 quickly and we'll get to that next step in a moment but we head up to Green Bay and talk to Steve hi Steve hey how you doing I'm okay your uh, your take on this sticky one here sticky yeah i you know first of all i don't think it's right i think it's you know pretty disgusting but Unfortunately, I shouldn't sport tongues, but I mean, the First Amendment rights, the kids hate speech is free speech. And if they say that stuff, I don't see the school has any grounds to get involved now. Do the parents? Absolutely. But um, I don't think the school has a leg to stand on. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. Yeah, you know, everybody says First Amendment rights, First Amendment rights, and Steve is right. I mean, you have freedom of speech. Um. And sometimes you may not agree with what that speech is, but such is the right we have. Let's keep this going. I want to go. Let's let's step now to the next dimension of this story. How is that any different? How is this any different than where we work? If you were to, as as the a few texters have said, including that one I mentioned, a few of you have said, look, if I do this. Even if it's off hours and somehow, some way, my boss finds out about it, there's a good chance I'm going to lose my job or face some sort of penalty. Which begs the question, how is that any different than being a student of a school? Albeit that is not an employee-employer relationship. Ah, this is a sticky one. I told you we need a lawyer. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. I can't just be honest with all of you. (laughs) I feel like every commercial break we take, I talk myself into the other side of the coin. Now, again, uh, the attorney for the kids says the school is acting outside the scope of its authority. It has no legal right to impose the discipline carried out. It has violated our client's constitutional rights by their reckless and hasty rush to judgment. I'm not making a prediction on how this ends in the courts, although I guess I'm leaning. I'd be surprised if this actually, if the punishment ultimately holds up, but I'm not a legal scholar. But I keep going back and forth on this one. I, I, I apologize for being this wishy-washy, but this is hard because you're right. It had nothing to do with school, nothing whatsoever. But 
and I don't know, some of you are bringing up the, or asking the, the question on the text line, but what if they assign some sort of honor code? Did they sign up for something? You know, did they say we will, you know, live to a standard? But again, it had nothing to do with school. It was off hours. And somebody made the point that this was, this was on Snapchat. It's not Facebook, okay, um, or Twitter that can be seen by everybody. Snapchat is something, it's like a text message. If a text message for a specific group of people, okay? Let's go through these quickly here. Uh, Milwaukee, it's Kay. Hi, Kay. You're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi, right, thanks for having me on. Um, I was listening, and it made me think about when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, as a black male, um, this is really personal to me because. When I was in high school, they only had Facebook. They didn't have all mm-hmm. the other social media they have now. But when they were on Facebook, they were doing the same exact thing. And though my name was not brought up, it made me feel very uncomfortable because the whole school knew about it. Mm. And I think that's the reason why this is important, because these kids are making a, a group that's just for them. But eventually, the other kids know about it, and then it will create a discussion that could be led by them or the <laughs> or be led by the school. And so I think the school is doing a good job on taking the reins and steering the, steering the conversation in a way that they know is not okay. Does it matter? Does it matter that, you know, you brought your situation, you alluded to, you know, the situation you had to deal with in high school. Does it matter that it was Snapchat and not something of a more of a more public venue like Facebook or Twitter? Does that matter? Um, the... I think it's important for the school to take a stand because um, if they didn't do it when I was in high school, who knows where where it could have went. Um, these students probably, when I was in high school, assumed only their friends were going to see it. Mm-hmm. And, of course, more of the school, school body found out, which is why I found out about it. It made me feel very uncomfortable. So protecting students who otherwise wouldn't have a voice, I think they're doing a good job. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Yeah, The, the odds of stuff like this getting out in a high school setting, I mean... I'm not stupid. I'm not naive. Kids talk. Things get out. Obviously, something got out because this was reported to the school board. I'm going to try to get in as many as I can here. Vincent, Northwest Side. Hey, Vincent. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, you know, schools have uh, disciplined uh, kids for having underage drinking and drug drug uh, parties. Uh, so I don't see why this is different. Now, now, my question is, does the punishment fit the crime? You know, does it does it does it uh, arise to to the point of uh, of expulsion, uh, uh, expelling expulsion, uh, expelling a student from school, and I think that that that's where the school gets in, in into this 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 these weeds. You know, the, maybe the fact is they could have uh, suspended them or they could have made this a teaching moment and and again brought in the parents and things of that sort. So, but uh, that's where I, I, I think uh, the school has a problem when they decided to expel these students. An overreaction and, to the punishment yes. has brought this issue to a boiling point, whereby we're talking about it in Milwaukee, right? Exactly, exactly. And so, so yeah, but yeah, I think the, the school has a right at, at, at some point or some version to discipline these students because I don't care if it was on Snapchat or uh, Facebook or whatever. It seems like this is a, a this is becoming a group a, a kind of group or or gang. Uh, uh, let me ask uh, you this on the way. Uh, let me ask you this, Vincent. I gotta let you go on the way out here. But where would you draw the line? Is there any 
Is there any place anywhere where a student, while they're enrolled in a four-year high school, cannot uh, be susceptible to high school punishment? Or as long as they're an enrolled student in a school, high school, whatever they do, wherever they do it, they could face consequences from, from the school? I think if it's something that's serious, Yes, I think I think they can face face the wrath of the school uh, if it's something that's serious, and, it, and this is very serious. And so, yeah, I think uh, if it's something that's serious, yeah, I think that they they can face some kind of discipline. Thanks, Vincent. Always good to hear from you. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. I'm going to go through the calls we have left as quickly as I can. Kevin in Oconomowoc, what say you? Good afternoon. You feel mushy because you should. Because <laughs> thank you. The issue the issue at hand. Goes against the grain of all of us. But the reality of it is, the school has no standing. If they want to do this, what's next? Do we start going after the kids who carry guns in Milwaukee? We just had one kid get killed who carried a gun in Milwaukee. Somebody knew about that gun that he was on Facebook with two months ago. Does Milwaukee School District intervene? They have no standing. they got a hard enough job just being a school district. Stay the hell out of people's personal lives. Bring the pressure to bear in the school setting for sure. Do the suspensions. Pin their head up against the wall. Pin their ears back. But you have to, everybody should ask their question, where does this stop right. that, government intervention into your life? That's where I... And I understand the point you're making. That's where I get squishy or mushy or whatever the word is because it's okay you, you if, 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 if I really? if, if if I approve. Thanks for the call, Kevin. I'll let you fly. If I approve of this or if I say the school's right to do it, well, then where do you draw the line? Then as long as I'm a an enrolled student student of, uh, you know, I went to Wisconsin Lutheran High School. As long as I've spent my four years at, at Wisco, does that mean that everything I do, even in the summertime when I'm you know on summer vacation somewhere? Doing something at, uh, you know, a vacation home up north in Door County. If I do something wrong there, could I face punishment by the high school? Um, real quickly. Ray in Pewaukee. Real quick, Ray. I've only got about 30 seconds. Go ahead, buddy. Uh, the school should be prepared for, for the unexpected. We live in a day with social media all around us, and decisions can't be made in emotion. The critical point for me would be, has the school proactively made a statement in their handbook, in their student handbook, that is distributed to parents and acknowledged by the parents that they're going to uh, agree to these rules and guidelines for the school. If that statement is in effect, then I think the school has a place to, for action. If they have not proactively made those statements public to the parents, then they probably should step back. Thanks for the call, Ray. I appreciate everybody. I'm out of time here. I appreciate everybody who weighed in. That, that That's a juicy one. That's a hot one. And I know that I'm convinced one way or the other, freedom of speech, whether you like the speech or not, is a right. But where do you draw the line? I'm going to be arguing with myself on this one throughout the newscast, which is next. And then after the news, we will recap New Hampshire. Craig Gilbert, smart political guy. I think his official title is uh, Washington Bureau Chief for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, political reporter. He'll join us and uh, share some of his wisdom and reaction as we move through the primary season in WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Scott Warris. Jeff is on vacation. And I appreciate all of you letting me move in for these five days. I like to talk to smart people. 
And he, when it comes to politics, locally, nationally, heck, internationally, he's as smart as they come. So when you have the day after a primary, like we had in New Hampshire yesterday, I always like to, I, I pester him, and when it works into his schedule, he's uh, he joins us. Craig Gilbert, political reporter, Washington Bureau Chief for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. You can follow him um, on Twitter, at WISVoter. Hi, Craig. Hey, thanks for the kind words. (laughs) Well, let me ask you this. First of all, can you decipher what Joe Biden meant by this? You're a lying dog-faced pony soldier. (laughs) (laughs) No, I can't. I can't help you there. How much did that comment hurt him in New Hampshire? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But, (laughs) boy, so, all right, is this Bernie's to lose? Let's just start with uh, the headline there. Is this now Bernie's nomination to lose? You know, I don't know if I would put it quite that strongly. I think he's probably uh, the closest thing we have to a front runner. Um, Saying it's his to lose means that the only way to me he can lose is if he really kind of screws it up. And I don't, I I wouldn't say that. I think it's still, the race is fragmented enough. It's open-ended enough. It's fluid enough. Um, you've got candidates that have different demographic strengths and weaknesses, different political strengths and weaknesses. You know, we're going to a different playing field every contest, you know, and all these contests differ so much from each other that even though there's a carryover from one state to another, um, it's a different ballgame each time. So I think he's got, you know, he's in a stronger position than his rivals, um, but it's, this, is a, this could be a long haul. The other number I think that a lot of folks, you know, pay attention to last night is turnout. I mean, that was one, well, that was one of the storylines out of Iowa. There were other ones, but that was one of the storylines out of Iowa was that compared to four years ago, compared to, you know, the 08 with Obama, that the, that the turnout, the, the Democrats just apparently weren't as jazzed as they have been in recent presidential cycles. What did we learn from the turnout last night in New Hampshire? Well, um, you know, I think it takes, uh, you know, a very special candidate to really drive up turnout in a primary. I mean, in a general election scenario, it's a little different. I mean, you can be motivated by the other side. You know, if you're the party out of power and you really don't like the president, that can be a motivator to turn out in a general election. But in a primary election, I think, you know, it, the candidates on in that party have to um, mo- really motivate voters. And I don't think it's a race where there's, you know, one candidate that's just electrifying the Democratic primary voters. Like I said, I think it's a fragmented race and there's candidates with different kinds of appeals. And so we're not necessarily seeing turnout, you know, um, uh, blow up in these in these states. And we may not see it going forward. Um, but I think it's, you know, what that might mean for the general election is another question. You know, you talk about turnout, and I, I obviously Trump, I mean, not being challenged seriously, but I, is there anything to be read into last night, I think at last count, Bill Weld got almost 14,000 votes. Is there anything to the fact that 14,000 people, you know, even knowing that 14,000 Republicans, even knowing that President Trump was going to win that primary and is going to be right. the nominee... You almost had 14,000 people still get up, get in their car, 
go outside, go to their polling place, and cast a vote for Bill Weld. Is there anything that can be read into that, or is that just another thing that we're looking too much into because we only have well, two states? Well, I think all these things, a lot of these things are just kind of clues on the margins. And, you know, New Hampshire is the kind of place where in the past um, you've had um, – you know, you've had presidents in their own party, you know, draw opposition. Um, this wasn't significant opposition, um, but it's also a state, you know, where independents can vote in either side's primary. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting <laughs> if and when the, when the race gets to Wisconsin, which is also which is an even more open primary because we don't have party registration, unlike New Hampshire. Right. It'll be interesting to see whether any of that is going on in Wisconsin, uh, because presumably we're still going to have a live Democratic contest and you're going to have President Trump, who's pretty much alone on the ballot. So really, there, there won't you won't really have any real official opposition, but it'll be interesting to see what the relative turnout is. It'll be interesting to see if he gets right in votes against him. I mean, this thing, this stuff is kind of slicing the, if, to mix my metaphor, slicing the tea leaves pretty finely. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's one thing I would stress for everybody when it comes to the raw math of the race and the delegate count is that the Democratic nominating rules um, make it extremely difficult, especially in a fragmented race, for any candidate to carve out a significant delegate lead, because all these delegates are allocated proportionally, not only statewide, but also within congressional districts. And when you have the way it works is it's just really hard to get, you know, if you have a congressional district that's worth 11 delegates and, um, you know, you it's really hard to, you know, you're going to get a six to five advantage almost any time you win that primary to get a seven to four advantage. You got to win by a lot. So it's, it's extremely difficult to get separation. And now you've got a fragmented race. So this race may be decided, you know, in the end by not by someone who's anywhere close to a majority of pledged delegates, but by someone who's got a significant lead. And that's not going to be easy to, um, to achieve. Now, this is, a really, this is a really great point, and it's something that I think a lot of people maybe just don't realize as we're following this, and I had forgotten about it myself. So help me teach us all a little, uh, little political science here 101. Is, are, is, are all the Democratic primaries... Uh, uh, there are no winner-take-alls. It's all proportionate Correct. delegates. Yeah, and Republicans yeah, yeah, they, they, are the opposite? Or how are the Republicans? Republicans, Republicans are a combination, but they there are winner-take-all Republican primaries. Okay. But there are, also, there are also mixed, you know, kind of there are primaries where some delegates are allocated at statewide level winner-take-all, but proportionally by congressional district or both by congressional district. So it's mm-hmm. a mix on the Republican side. But on the Democratic side, you just can't. There is no winner-take-all um, by party rule. So, again, um, it makes it hard. I mean, Bernie Sanders beat Hillary Clinton by double digits in Wisconsin um, four years ago. And he only came, you know, his delegate advantage was really small um, for the same reasons I just laid out. It's just, you know, it was a decisive victory in the vote. He won 71 to 72 counties. And he came out with basically a handful more delegates than, than she had. And you multiply that state after state, especially if the same candidate isn't winning every state. Um, and it just it just makes for a very fragmented delegate race. And, um, you know, you could still go into Milwaukee in July, um, far short of a majority of pledged delegates um, and be the, you know, the, the likely nominee because you're in a better position than anyone else. But 
you're not going to go. It's hard to go into that convention with a majority of pledged delegates. And the farther away from majority you are, the more it increases at least the scenario, the possibility of a of an open convention scenario. Craig Gilbert, political reporter, Washington bureau chief for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and JS Online. Of course, you follow him. He's a great Twitter follower, uh, especially on nights like last night. And we're going to have more like it moving forward at WIS Voter. Craig, can I have you hang just for a quick two-minute break? I want to come back sure. and get your thoughts on on Biden and Bloomberg, because those clearly feel like two campaigns going in two very different directions. So um, if you could just hang tight real quick, we'll come back. I'll get your thoughts on that as we roll ahead. It's fascinating stuff, folks. you got to soak it up. Have a little fun with it. And uh, Craig's teaching us some things as well, because he's really smart at politics, and we like people like that. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Jeff is on vacation. I am Scott. He is Craig Gilbert, Washington Bureau Chief for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. And JS Online, of course, uh, one of the best political reporters around. Okay, let's turn our attention now, Craig, to the bees. Bi- we talked Bernie. Now let's go, let's go Biden next. Um, is it pretty much South Carolina or bust or South Carolina with a little bit of Nevada or bust? I think so. I just, you know, at a certain point you have to, you have to win or, or you have to come close at least. And You'd like, you, you would think so. <laughs> well, especially when you're, when you kind of start out the race as, you know, in the eyes of some people as the front runner and you, you know, you're the kind of elder statesman of the party and you're also, you know, you're, you're, when your candidacy is based heavily on electability um, and you're not winning uh, Democratic elections, Democratic Party elections, that just is very undermining. And um, and so very weak performances in Iowa, New Hampshire. You know, he does. He has had in, when it comes to the polling, a historically strong position with respect to African-American voters. And that is a big deal in South Carolina. Um, so we'll see. I mean, I think it, there's obviously a ton of urgency. And now he's got, you know, more competition than ever. Um, for, you know, the so-called either whether you call it the electability vote or the moderate vote, um, you've got um, I know some other candidates we'll be talking about, but certainly people who are Jamie Klobuchar and Mike Bloomberg are all candidates that are competing with Joe Biden to be seen as effective candidates against Donald Trump. What factors or what? Because I, I've read a few articles. I think Politico had a piece late last week or early this week, this weekend, about some of the behind the scenes issues with the Biden campaign. But what, based on your instincts, what is happening with the Biden campaign that they just have not been able to gain traction through the first two stops? Yeah, I don't view these things as campaign problems. I view them as candidate problems. And so it all. I mean, we we spend a lot of time in covering these campaigns, talking about tactics, talking about operations, and, and talking about you know the organizations. And obviously, organization is a big deal in some of these elections. But it all gets back to the candidate. And Joe Biden, you know, has not had a history of performing well as a candidate. And um, even though he sort of looked good in some respects on paper coming into this into this race, and still has some strengths on paper in national polling, but he is he's declining in the national polls. So I think it just gets back to your effectiveness as a candidate. He, you know, it, it get back, it gets back to how sort of voters perceive you when they're listening to you, um, what they think of your rationale, your case, um, and 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 how much confidence you inspire in them, and how much appeal you have mm-hmm. to 
to voters. And that's, I think, so his, so his problems, I think, are the same you'd say about any other candidate that's, that's underperforming or failing to meet expectations. It, it gets back to um, the performance of the candidate. Correct me if I'm wrong. I thought I heard this last night on one of the networks I was watching at some given time, but this is the third time that Biden has run for president. He has never won a primary state yet. Not even one. I think I heard that. Yeah, and I don't know whether that's true or not, but I yeah. know that his his history as a Demo- as a candidate for the Democratic mm-hmm. nomination has been um, has been a, you know a very underwhelming yes. one, and so he's never you know that's the that's obviously a test that he had to meet um, and, and a hurdle he had to get over in this race. Bloomberg, the uh, we, we we talk about his financial wherewithal, and he can spend till the till the cows come home. It, does he take that? moderate lane as it were of 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 the left of the democratic party if if biden just cannot gain traction here in the next two weeks is this come down to a bloomberg versus bernie well i think right now it's not we don't have quite that much clarity because um you've got Buttigieg and klobuchar um performing you know pretty well in new hampshire and Buttigieg performing pretty well in iowa now you know, there is. You talk about the kind of moderate lane and the liberal lane, and that's one. That's only one kind of way of breaking this down. I think you know, there's some demographic lines in this race too, where different candidates have different strengths and weaknesses when it comes to groups other than just whether you're a moderate or a liberal, but whether you're you know a college graduate or a blue collar Democrat or white or African American or a man or a woman. We've seen some, you know, that kind of affects the way we talk about lanes, too. And also you have this thing about, you know, they ask in the exit polls, you know, do you want to nominate somebody who's more in line with your views on issues or someone you think has a better chance of defeating Donald Trump? Well, that's one of the lanes, too, and that is the lane of, you know, voters that care the most about electability, who's their candidate, and voters that are driven more by passion for policy positions and you know political values who's their candidate and so there is kind of an electability lane and and i think um you know there's more than one candidate competing for that i mean the bernie sanders you might not necessarily put him in the electability lane but his supporters would argue electability for bernie sanders and he doesn't you know he hasn't been really performing much worse than joe biden in the general election polling including in wisconsin against mm-hmm. donald trump so you know he certainly wouldn't dismiss that um but there are a lot of voters who sort of see who, there are some voters who don't see Bernie Sanders as the most electable candidate, and they're looking for someone else. And that could end up being Mike Bloomberg. It could end up being B. Buttigieg. It could end up being Amy Klobuchar yeah. if you really continue this momentum. And there's something to be said for the fact that Bloomberg has not been the recipient of any incoming yet. I mean, he's been he's been lobbing the Molotov cocktails, but I think we're going to see him on the debate stage, aren't we, on Friday? And look, he's he's going to be getting some of the incoming now as well. I only got about a minute and a half left, yeah. Craig. So let's end on this, because here we've talked for 20 minutes, and the, we haven't even talked about Klobuchar and Buttigieg, the, the, the folks who finished or two Or Elizabeth three. Warren, for that Warren, Warren as well. But specifically to Klobuchar and Buttigieg, do they have the ground game to continue this momentum into Nevada, South Carolina, and Super Tuesday? Or, you know, you put all your eggs in the Iowa-New Hampshire basket and you go, great, if you're Klobuchar, great, we won. Oh, crap, 
Now we got to go to Nevada and South Carolina and Super Tuesday. Can they keep yeah, this I mean, going? That, that's, a, that's a big big challenge for them, as is money. And Buttigieg has had money. Amy Klobuchar needs to start raising money. So money is a bigger challenge for some candidates um, than others. Uh, but, you know, there's so many states. Um, I mean, nobody's going to have a ground game, really, um, a great ground game across all these states that start voting in March. It's just a blur. Michael Bloomberg obviously has a huge financial advantage, but he doesn't have the – you know, the political base foot soldiers that some of this Bernie Sanders has. So it all goes into the mix in in March. Craig, you're generous with your time. I could do this for all three hours of the show. We'll do it again real soon. I appreciate it as always. Thank you, my friend. Okay, great to be with you. Craig Gilbert, political reporter, Washington Bureau Chief for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. You follow him on JS Online and on Twitter at WIS Voter. He's a great follow, smart guy in politics, and you can't have enough smart people this time of year. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. One thirty-one. Appreciate Craig jumping on with us. I hope you take find some value in that A little political science class. Nobody better than Craig Gilbert. Yeah, that that is something I was reminded of last night. Now, as we watch this primary cycle and season, you know, go through and pass along, Democrats have no winner-take-all states. So every state, its delegate count is divvied up on a state-by-state basis based on how much of they get of the district, and then you get complicated. But there's no winner-take-all. And like he said, uh, the Republicans do have some winner-take-all delegate states. So different strokes for different folks, that's for sure. Super Tuesday, uh, first Tuesday, I think it's March 3rd, first Tuesday, obviously, in, um, in March. It'll be wild and woolly, and That's we'll have my dad's, it all for my dad's birthday, March 3rd. Is it? Yeah. That's a Super yeah, Tuesday super for a whole Tuesday. other reason. <laughs> That's right. Hey, Dad, you want to celebrate by watching the results come in? <laughs> I'm like, no. <laughs> you call this a gift? You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Texter saying that uh, with all the unneeded junk food I wind up buying at the grocery store, I would probably use, you know, a grocery delivery service, save money by having my groceries delivered. Do you save money? I don't know. Uh, You know what I think about? I think about our story yesterday regarding banning, making it illegal to pump your own gas. Buying your own groceries is one of those things where, yeah, I get the convenience of it, but... I don't see how having it being delivered to you is more affordable than just going to the store and getting it. Well, and I assume if the Milwaukee metro area, the Indianapolis metro area, and what, the top two or three largest metro areas in Chicago in the country, if all those areas are... If Peapod's leaving them, they're clearly not a not a profitable area. If you live in like a condo complex or a huge apartment building where you live on like the 10th, 12th floor, then I get it. Like mm-hmm. that's I, that is a, a great service. But for you know, I mean, we don't have too many of those in the Milwaukee area unless you live downtown or in the third ward. So yeah, I mean, if it, it some a service like this does not apply to me <laughs> at all. If somebody wants to make the claim for. Yes, I demand my groceries be delivered. I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll entertain it for a moment here. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Did you use Peapod? Your, your. If you used it, you've now uh, uh, lost it because it is gone. But I was making the comment as well about avocados, 
And there were a bunch of stories that came out about 10 days ago during or, or, during or around the Super Bowl weekend. Uh, this one's from NPR. Um, there's an, a co-author of a 2019 study published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, C, that found that as avocado consumption has gone up in America, so too have avocado-related knife injuries. This author and his colleagues looked at, here are the numbers. Okay, here we go. Here's some statistics. Here's some empirical data or data for you. All right. This author and his colleagues looked at emergency room data and found that between 98 and 2017, so that's basically 20 years, in a 20-year span, an estimated 50,413 people paid a visit to an ER for an avocado-related knife mishap. Uh, They say that in 1998, listen to this uh, uh, comparison. In 1998, there were around 650 such injuries. In 98, 650 avocado knife-related mishaps. 20 years later, there were nearly 6,000. That's almost a tenfold increase. Now, obviously, the avocado is more popular and thus more opportunity for injury. The most common demographic injured were, you want to guess? Women ages 23 to 29. That's pretty funny. I used to date a girl that, that cut the avocado horizontally, and I tried to tell her that that was not the right way, and she's like, no, this way works perfectly fine, and I was... Uh, we're not together anymore. <laughs> and then one day she lost a finger, and you said, see, I told you. <laughs> That's not the way. And the injuries to that key demo were most common on the left hands of patients, likely the non-dominant hand. You're cutting with the right. You're holding the avocado yeah, with the or left. Or you're holding it in your hand while you're cutting it. Like, oh, my goodness. Well, what is the proper? Okay, I'll ask the stupid question here. Just put it on a cutting board. You can sort of pinch it between your fingers, but you don't you don't hold it in midair, the right. avocado, bring the knife to the avocado with you with your hand holding it. That's that's not safe at all. How does that even sound safe? You know what I would like to know? Be, the comparison of avocado knife related injuries to bagel knife related injuries. Because a lot of sure. people slice themselves in the hand, go cutting through the bagel, and then you whoop you gone too far. That's rough as well. Hmm. Now people are weighing in here. They're weighing in on the Peapod disappearance. Do you do you send out for your groceries? Jack and West Bend, you send out for your groceries? Uh, well, we sent out for my mother-in-law. She was in her 80s and she couldn't drive. Mm. So we would order it online and have them drop right to her kitchen. They'd bring her right in the house for her. Okay. She lived in a, a senior apartment. And a lot of people in her apartment building was all seniors. Mm. A lot of people used that that um, teapot, and they and the food was fresh. I mean, they brought it in; it was really nice food. Okay, all the vegetables were fresh, and uh, the meat was good. Mm. So I would say it was a pretty good bargain for everybody, for okay. us and for her. So there's a demo. Thanks, Jack. I'll let you fly. So there's a there there's another key demographic: um, older people, senior citizens who no longer drive, uh, live in a retirement home of some sort, a retirement community, and thus get their groceries shipped to them. Okay, that's fair. 
Interesting, though. Now I'm going to do, I'm, I will look it up. This will be uh, what we will be monitoring through the rest of the show. I'm going to look up for bagel-related injuries and compare that to the avocado knife-related injuries. Yes, indeed. These are the key stories of the day, folks, and you'd be glad you tuned in. This is Jeff Wagner on WGMJ. Two thousand people annually cut their fingers so badly on bagels that they have to go to emergency room. That's some of the numbers I'm seeing. Yeah, we're going back to the avocado. I think it's not just the cutting; it's then how you how do you take out the pit of the avocado? You're supposed to take a very sharp knife and hack at it so that it penetrates the pit, and then you pluck it out. And again, if you're holding the avocado albeit sliced, in your left hand, and you whack at it with your knife with your right hand, and it slips or it skids off the... Ugh. All right, people, we need, to be, we need to be mindful and be cautious of that. Hmm. Okay. Don't forget, before uh, 3 o'clock, we will be announcing today's winner of the How Much Do You Love Golf Contest. With the great folks at Sticks Golf, $25 gift card to today's winner. The voting is now uh, closed, or the, the posting is now closed. You'll get a chance again tomorrow. We do that from about 8 to one thirty or so, 8 to one thirty. All this week, just go to WTMJ's Facebook page and click on the icon, the logo there that says, How much do you love golf? Post something witty, creative, authentic, don't be phony. And if we call your name in the 2 o'clock hour, you'll get a $25 gift card to Sticks Golf Course. There's a theme to the today's show. I found a few, and we talked about it in the noon hour, school-related topics. There's some good things out there to discuss, you guys. And this is another one. And it comes from our, our good friend Christian Schneider. Remember Christian Schneider? Um, he writes for the Senior College Fix reporter in this particular uh, instance out of Madison. And Christian, who's been on this station for many, many years, on and off, but Christian talks about his reaction to getting the grades from his from his child. And they no longer have the A to F grading system. Um, I knew this was happening. I don't know how commonplace it is. Is this happening everywhere? I can't imagine everywhere. But Christian writes how he received his second grade daughter's report card from a a school in the Madison Metropolitan District. And he writes about how the A to F system in this particular district is gone. And my question is this. Is there any... Is there any validity to the A to F system anymore? Is it, or, or is that an antiquated grading system in schools? Can we do better than A to F? Is there, you know, an invention of a newer, better, more imaginative wheel, as it were? 855-616-1620, especially if you have uh, uh, somebody you know who is enrolled in school and does not, and they don't have the A to F system. Here's what Christian writes. His uh, daughter, second grader, was given a grade of the following. EX, M, DV, or E. So A, B, C, D, F, gone. And it's been replaced by EX, 
M, D, V, or E. Now, let's see. Here's what they stand for. You tell me if this would be helpful to you as a student or as a parent of a student. EX means exceeding. Student consistently exceeds grade level expectations for the end of the year. So I guess EX is like an A, right? The M is meeting. Student consistently meets grade level expectations for the end of the year. So that's, I guess it'd be like a C, average or meeting expectations. The DV is developing. Student is developing and understanding. A student is developing, understanding, and is approaching grade-level expectations for the end of the year. So I guess we'll put that like a D. Oh. And emerging, student begins to show initial understanding of grade-level expectations for the end of the year. I-, I guess that's an F. Exceeding, meeting, developing, and emerging. Is this scale, is a, is a grade scale of those elements, of those words, is that in this day and age more helpful to students and to parents than A, B, C, D, F? Because in the end, and Christian makes this point, in the end, nobody's really failing. You always have potential. Each one of these speak to one's potential. Either you're exceeding the potential, you're meeting your potential, It's de- we see it and it's developing, or it's there deep down inside and it's, it's beginning to show the initial understanding of grade level expectations for the end of the year. 855-616-1620. Does the A through F grade scale, has it, has it run its course? Has it found the end of its term? Is it time to move on? Are those letters just no longer the right thing to do for students of any level? And maybe it's time we go to other terms and letters to distinguish and kind of determine where they are in the learning process. 855-616-1620. Teachers, if you're out there, why aren't you in class? But if you're a retired teacher, give us a call, shoot us a text. Moms and dads, if this was the grading scale your little Sally or Billy got, would you find it helpful or not? 855-616-1620. More people would rather talk avocado and bagel cutting injuries than, than the education system and our young people in the classroom, apparently. Well, look, I'll just say this. I'm with Christian Schneider. It's a great piece, but... I, I don't know how to gauge that. When, when you've had a, the A through F scale for, what, a century or something like that? I, I don't know what any of this means. As a student, I, I, I can't put this on any type of scale. And then I don't have any kids, but from a parental perspective, so your kid's never failing? You just kind of emerge? Well, doesn't everybody have potential? What's the line that Christian uses? Oh, he says, as you can see, every grade is dripping with optimism, presuming every child is on the road to excellence. The only thing they are being graded on is the speed at which they are attaining complete world knowledge. Yeah, well said, Christian. Now, uh, yeah, Renee in New Berlin on the text line. Uh, Here we go again, the pat on the back. Feel good. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's a time and a place for it. If it were my child, the A to F grades are more helpful. It gives a more honest way of grading. Now the text line coming in. Uh, Chris, Scott, I have three kids in school, and I'm nearly 50. The trend my wife and I are seeing in the schools is this subtle attempt to make kids feel good about themselves, even when their work may be subpar. 
Is that what's going on? The standards are weakening today from when I was in school. Needless to say, a new grading system is not to their benefit. The work world will not be as kind. That's another good point, Chris. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something, kids. If you are getting a... Hmm, instead of being told you're failing uh, math, you're simply getting an E for emerging because you're beginning to show initial understanding of grade-level expectations for the end of the year. You know, as as get-off-my-lawnish as this sounds, you, you enter the real world, there's not a lot of bosses out there that are going to call you into your office saying, look... I, I just want to let you know that we think in your first couple months on the job, while you're you're not really doing the job for which you were hired and our company is not as effective because of the work you're not doing, we do think that you're beginning to show some initial understanding of grade level expectations for the end of the year. And we'll circle back then. No, either you're doing the job or you're not. The real world doesn't have time for this kind of stuff. You're going to get fired if you fail your job, even if that's not the case on your march through grade school. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Scott Warris. 209. In for Jeff. We'll be out all week back on Monday. I kind of hesitated in going down this path, but I'm going to do it in a way that I just, I'm going to tell everybody where I'm coming from on this. I have two reactions to the news, and you heard Greg Matzik in sports there say that Giannis is missing tonight's game in Indianapolis because of the birth of his son. Uh, was that, that was Sunday, I think, right? Or Monday morning? I can't remember. Four days ago, maybe, so Sunday, over the weekend. Uh, congratulations to him. I'm not a dad, so I, I can't relate to that. Now, I'm, I'm twofold on this. And I do this in the name of transparent, full transparency. I have two reactions to this. One, I admit, I admit completely and I'm wondering if any of you thought about this as well, and maybe you're not going to admit it on the radio, but as the selfish sports fan, Bucks fan, who wants the team for which I root to be as good as possible every night out, striving for a really special season, can I, I'll just admit, selfishly... I'm bummed he's not playing tonight in Indianapolis. Am I wrong for that? I probably am. And you know what it is a reminder of for myself, I'm reminding myself of this? We often see athletes, certainly on the professional stage, we see athletes as not human beings. I think in football especially, we think of them as robots, just uh, pieces on a board. I think some of it's because they're wearing a helmet, so you really don't see the face, and you just think of them as objects, and did our objects beat your objects? But this is a reminder for me and a lot of fans. I'm a little ticked off. Come on, Giannis. Let's go tonight. Let's go. 
The kid is healthy by all accounts. I don't know. I assume so. He posted the photo. Mom is doing well. Kid was born on Sunday. And there, there's the selfish, um, ignorant side of me. My, you know, meathead sports, my, my meathead sports fan side that says, come on, get to Indy, play the game. It's going to be a tough game tonight, I think, against the Pacers. Their Pacers are struggling, so they want to win. The Bucks rolling, maybe a historically great season. But I'm, I'm trying to tell my ignorant meathead fan side to say, Scott, shut up. What is wrong with you? These are human beings. And it is amazing how, and I, I'm willing to bet there are people out there who are criticizing, I don't know this. Maybe there are people out there, I'm sure there are, criticizing Giannis for not going to the game or, or not participating in the game tonight. I just know that because I know those people are out there. And I'm trying to squelch that inner voice in me who wants him to play and wants to criticize him for not playing. But you remind yourself, and I'm reminding myself, Athletes are human beings, and we don't see them as that. I think in large part, unless you know somebody who's a professional athlete, uh, we don't largely see them as people. Am I making sense? We, we, We see them as, did you win or lose? How many points? How many yards? Uh, what are the stats for, for, for that, for my team, for those objects on the field? But they're people. They're like all of us. And this is one of those moments where you have to remind yourself, Bucks fans, Giannis is a dad. He's a father. And like so many of you out there who have gone through parenthood, you have personal time when you need off from work. And if you want to spend a little extra time with the wife and your newborn, so be it. That's fine. And you know, and I'm saying this as much for me right now as I am for Bucks fans out there. Because you know, Kyle, there are people out there who are genuinely, I'm willing to bet, and you can poke around on, on social media maybe, but I'm willing to bet there are people out there who are criticizing Giannis for missing this game. They should feel, I mean, if they're really feeling that way, they should consider it pretty lucky, the timing of all this then. Like the, the birth of his son to be a week before the All-Star break. They're on this huge winning streak. They're winning five games without him. Uh, or whenever they play so far, they're, they're undefeated without him. So they're playing fine. So they don't necessarily need him this week. But if, you know, if they were in a tighter spot going up to the playoffs and needed a few wins against like the 76ers or, or the Celtics, it might be a different story. A couple texters, I don't know if you're yelling at me or the people who I say are kind of thinking like I am. 920, get a grip. We need him in the playoffs. Again, it's it's a Wednesday night game in the middle of February, and you're running away with the best record. Uh, the 414, you're right. Shut up. This is a child. I actually agree with you. How often does somebody in this seat read a text telling the host to shut up, and the host agrees with you? But I agree with you. Uh, the 262, wrong it's wrong to think that way he has pe- oh oh I, I missed okay all right how about this the 262 wrong he has people to take care of the baby what is he going to do breastfeed the kids huh that, that's like saying it's not important to be there I, for yeah, the five days okay. after your child is born come on 
let's do this because I want to ask the larger question because this all speaks also to, to the issue of paternity leave, paternity leave. And I feel as if it's just been in the last 10 years or so that paternity leave has become a thing. Um, again, not a dad here. Hello. Not a father. So I will ignorantly ask the question, dads and moms out there, 855-616-1620. How long should the dad hang around after the birth of a child and still be useful? Is there a point at which dad is no, if everything is going well and everybody's healthy, there's no health problems. Is there a point at which dad is just, you're getting in the way? You can get back into your regular rigmarole and whatnot. Um, 608 saying a happy Giannis is a good playing Giannis. <laughs> Let him go. Uh, what else? 262. It's okay to take a few days. Not the end of the world. The team is doing great. I don't see any reason why he needs to rush back. I, as a dad, took seven weeks. You took seven weeks off? The texter saying. Huh. Somebody else said, um, and they said seven weeks was more than enough time. Another texter, one week. Okay, dads and moms, because you may have a, you do have a say in this process. How long is too long? And I'm not, you know, we're moving away from Giannis now. My point of bringing it up was simply a message to my own ignorant, stupid, self-sports fan inside of me and to any of you out there who maybe were criticizing him for missing the game. Knock it off. And I say that for me as well. Stop. The team is fine. They may lose tonight, and they'll still be fine. And he's a happy dad. Let him do his thing. And then he got the all-star break, and he'll be good to go after that. But larger question here. How long is too long? Or how long is long enough for a father to go on paternity leave. What does the dad do? Does the dad just tend to the infant while mom sleeps? What usefulness is dad in the days and, dare I say, weeks after the birth of a child? 855-616-1620 on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Educate me on this one. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. is too long for paternity leave what does dad do i I really am i'm asking for some help here i mean i suppose dad just does a lot of the chores that mom would otherwise do uh one texter said he had seven weeks he was off for seven weeks when his kid was born um yeah patrick from fond du lac talking about all you know the housework the errands the phone calls the relatives helps mom that way while mom is resting or with the youngster but I'm just curious, what goes into paternity leave, and at what point do you go, okay, that's enough, I'm going back to work? Bill in Plymouth. Hi, Bill. Yeah, hi. Okay, here's my take on this whole issue. You know, women strive for the longest time to say they could work right up until they had the baby because it wasn't a sickness. Just, you know, they, they could work and everything was, they wanted equality. So my thinking, as long as the child is healthy and the mother is okay, about two days should be enough. Anything after that is hogwash, because if there was some statistical information or something that told us the child was better off because the father was around, I would believe it. But if anything, over the last 40 years, our children are worse off. So two days is enough. Two days. You, okay, so you Unless say- there's a medical issue with the child or the mother. 
Okay. Um, uh, are, okay. Are, you a, are you a dad, Bill? Yes, I am. How long did you take off when you had your kid or kids? Do you remember? Oh, my kids are all 25 to 30 years old. Well, I, right. I didn't take anything off. You did I was in the hospital while they were born, and I went back to work. Okay. All right. Back at it the next day. All right. Thanks for the call, Bill. 855-616-1620. Renee in New Berlin says a couple of weeks for dads. It gives the wife a chance to get some sleep because she honestly is not getting a whole lot of sleep at night, especially if she's breastfeeding. And it gives dad a chance to bond with the child, which is extremely important. Two or three weeks at the most. Because after that, I think the wife wants him to get back to work because she gets sick of him being home. Uh, another texter, four weeks to eight weeks, depending on what they do for a living. I work construction and took four weeks off, which I think is the minimum, considering how much I was able to help my wife transition to having a newborn, especially if it's a family's first child. Yeah, there's something to be said probably for the first one as well. It's, you're going through it the for the first time, you're rookie, you're rookie parents. So maybe you're smart to, to do that. Let's go to Steve in Milwaukee. Hi, Steve. You're on WTMJ. Hi, how's it going? Yeah, I got seven kids. I got four of them in high school, and I got a set of twins that are two. So the number one thing as a dad, when you get home with the baby, is getting the breast milk in them. You got to do anything you can do to make the woman as comfortable. We're making them food. We're rubbing their feet, Mm -hmm. getting them ice cream. As long as they get the food inside of them, you know? Sure. So let me ask you this, Steve. After that? Since you've been the the father through seven seven or I guess maybe six instances you said you have twins uh, how much time would you take off each time as much as they'll give me okay all right so you did with six weeks they'll give us six weeks from family medical leave right and so with that that six weeks you know you're trying to get that bond in there too you know so whenever the woman's sleeping and the the baby's up you're calming them down until the woman gets back up you know the number one thing though I want everybody to remember is love Love your woman, love your child, and that's the number one thing. Without love, we have nothing in this world. There you that's go. The, that's the number one bond. Perfect, Steve. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Well, well said. Yeah, so I was looking it up. A lot of this comes from the, because I think a lot of people who are maybe older or grandparents by now, they go, we never had this. Well, a lot of it is tied to the 1993 Family and Medical Leave Act which defined paternity leave as the amount of time a man takes off uh, work for the birth, adoption, or placement of a child. So that's really when it became a thing. Do you remember how and why this became a major topic of conversation? It did so, when, when, when was this? What year was this? I can't remember now. There was a player for the New York Mets, Daniel Murphy. He took three days off of paternity leave, and he got... He caught hell for it. Locally from Mets fans, the New York fan base, and it kind of rippled across the nation. And it was one of those first instances of a of an athlete taking paternity leave and kind of getting, uh, well, getting criticized for it. And that, that's not what I'm doing with Giannis at all. I was just talking about my own feeling, <laughs> my stupid, ignorant, selfish sports fan feeling, but talking myself and talking all of you who felt similarly off the ledge. Let the man be a dad, first-time father, right? All right. We need to hear from some females here. Diane and Greenfield, give us the mom perspective on paternity leave. Hi. Hi. I had seven children. Uh, My husband went right back to work, and he was not around a lot. 
My son is now on seven weeks paternity leave with his third baby. With a newborn, there's a bonding issue, and generally that's touching and voice. I think it's very, very important for the uh, newborn to have that from the father also. Later on in life, dad might be working and off doing other things, but newborn needs that bonding, especially for dad. Seven weeks, is that is that kind of the max? It seems like a long time, seven weeks, no? It it does, yeah, but that's what he's offered in his position. Sure. So, And he can stretch it out, too, and take two days a week or whatever. But mm. uh, like I said, that bonding is very, very important with a newborn. Thanks for your perspective, Diane. Uh, one more, Brookfield, it's Joe. Hi, Joe. Hi. Hi, go ahead. Your thoughts from the mom perspective. Well, I'm thinking that it's... <clears throat> fabulous and i think sometimes the moms have to go back to work after anywhere from six to 12 weeks and then the dad can take the next stint of his leave so then the baby can be with either the mom or the dad you know the longest period of time but usually the paternity and the maternity leave they run congruently don't they they, they don't have to, no. Um, I know with my daughter, it didn't. You know, when she had her baby, um, she's, she had to go back to work after a certain amount of time. Then her husband, now he didn't get seven weeks or anything like that, but he, he either got one or two weeks, and he, he started his leave after, after my daughter had to go back to work. i got to delve deeper into the Family Medical Leave Act. I don't know if that's outlined there, because I... I guess I didn't know you could do that. I thought it has to be within a certain, there has to be a cutoff at which point they say yeah. the, the kid, you know, the, the newborn is no longer a newborn and thus you are no longer eligible for leave, right? I don't know. Well, you know what, I, I, don't, I don't know that. I just know what, what happened in my family. Sure, right. I'm asking questions I don't know answers to. That's when I get myself in trouble. Thanks for the call, Joe. There you go. I appreciate your perspective very much. Uh, but yes, indeed. Nobody get mad at Giannis. You'll be a dad for one more night. Then it's the all-star break. Then back to it. And we'll have every game right here on WTMJ. Thanks for everybody who called and texted, educating me, the childless host in this time slot this week. I don't know that I would need seven weeks. I'm trying to put myself in there, but how, how, how can you, how can I put myself in a position of being a dad until you're in a dad? You, you don't know how you react. I'll probably listen back to this tape years from now and say, Warris, you were a moron. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Did I say congruently or concurrently? And I look at Kyle and he goes, when? (laughs) In the last segment of the show. (laughs) Uh, I always say words are important. Words have meaning. And now I'm thinking, when I I was talking about paternity and maternity leave, they run concurrently. I may have said congruently. I don't know that that's You're human. That's okay. No, but words are important. No, they are important. I get it. But, you know. I I like to hold myself to a high standard when you, you know, talk for a living. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you do that. But every once in a while. I know that triangles can be Making a mistake is okay. Not okay, but. Do you remember congruent triangles from geometry? I do. Mm, Yeah. I I wasn't a huge fan. Current triangles. I think people knew what I meant, even if I used the wrong word. I'm always very conscious of that. Okay. Okay. Still to come in the next half hour, we're going to give away a 
uh, $25 gift card to Sticks Golf for our most creative commenter of the day on the WTMJ Facebook page under the How Much Do You Love Golf contest. Also, a three-pack of stories is right around the corner as well. Some random oddities that we'll mention in just a moment. But first, I'm running two minutes late. There's the shock of the day. Let's get some headlines with Melissa. Thank you, Jeff. Dean at Marquette University. Oh, oh, I'm like sorry. right there. Do you know what you just did? Thank you, Scott. You said Jeff. Oh, did I say Jeff? See? Oh, no. Okay. See, now now I don't feel so bad for saying congruent Oops. when I meant concurrent. My script, I even put Scott in there because I knew there was a, a change, obviously. All right. All right. Thank Thanks you, Scott. Thanks for making Scott. me feel better. Okay. Right. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Two thirty-eight. Scott Morris in for Jeff. WTMJ. I found these three stories today that um, you may not have heard or seen, and that's why I will present it to you in a little something we call Great Scott! Do you know who Sharon Choi is? Sharon Choi. Sharon Choi is Bong Joon-ho's interpreter. Parasite, the big winner at the Oscars on Sunday. Bong Joon-ho, the director, uh, it ultimately won several big awards, but ultimately won the movie of the not movie of the year, but best best film of the year, first foreign language film to ever take that home. Well, Sharon Choi is the interpreter that was up there, in essence giving the response and the acceptance speeches for the director who doesn't speak altogether fluid English, though he did, you know, manage a few sentences and whatnot. Well, now Sharon Choi is saying that because of her experience along the way with Bong Joon-ho on the, the campaign trail, the movie campaign trail, that she might try to build her own filmmaking career. Speaking with The rap. Back in January, and certainly now as the movie has exploded, um, Sharon Choi told the rap that in light of her remarkable experience as the interpreter, she may start a filmmaking career of her own. Uh, she says, I even studied film uh, in university. Um, I'm so curious about it. I'm actually working on a feature script. Um, she's a director too, says Bong, and she is now thinking about creating a movie, creating her own film, her first film about, she says this, about awards season and the ride that she has been on as the interpreter for Bong Joon-ho. We'll see if this makes the Academy's list down the line as well, but I just thought it's interesting. It did cross my mind as... Bong Joon-ho kept winning things and going up there and giving these hilarious and very animated acceptance speeches. And then I'm like, oh, this woman is... I, I even thought for a second, this woman up on stage is going to be famous for her you know, her time here in the spotlight as interpreter. And sure enough, she's going to use this experience and maybe start her own filmmaking career. Right, Scott! The Westminster Dog Show, right, was yesterday or the last few days and it culminated last night. Some pompous-looking, arrogant poodle one. I mean, you, you talk about thinking of a dog that would embody um, 
pretentiousness. Make that a word. That dog did. Anyway, they're going to talk more about it on the afternoon show. But how about this dog? This is a dog that I found a dog that I think really would strike a chord with middle America. It's a morbidly obese dog. <laughs> it tips the scales at 22 pounds. After scoff, uh, scarfing down bucket loads of cheese-flavored Doritos. Barrel-shaped Skyler weighs... It's a Jack Russell, by the way. A Jack Russell Terrier weighs almost double what, what an average Jack Russell should. After her doting owners and their neighbors could not refuse the puppy dog eyes. Four-year-old Jack Russell will scoff at anything in sight, including her owner's other dog's dinner, but has a special fondness for cheesy nachos. But after developing problems with her breathing, Vets ordered the Porky Pooch to swap crisps for carrots. The owner is Mandy Hannigan, 59-year-old woman. She will now be increasing the distance on their walks. Mandy says she was only a puppy when we got her, and she was extremely slim. She kept growing and growing. My other dog is a bit fussy about his food, so Skylar would end up eating his food as well. Skylar eats absolutely everything, and it's very difficult to say no when she gives you those, yes, puppy dog eyes. She absolutely loves Doritos. She would eat about one-third of a bag every time I'd have some, which would be a few times a week. She also eats mini cheddars, hula hoops, pickled onions, sausages, you name it. And Mandy's saying, don't just blame me for my fat Jack Russell Terrier. My neighbor calls her twice a day and gives her leftover meat, biscuits, cheese. So now she's been banned to give her anything. I want to help her lose weight for the sake of her health and happiness. So I've entered Skylar into Pet Fit Club, and we are hoping to be selected as one of the lucky competitors. The goal is to lose half her body weight, so the goal is to lose 11 pounds. Yeah. Blame the dog, because the dog's eating too much Doritos. Yeah, dog's fault here. Right, Scott! Speaking of being fat, humans, what is the common belief? 10,000 steps a day. Fitbit going on, you're tracking your steps. How many steps? 10,000, 10,000. That's the magic number. Well, well, well. New U.S. researchers found that although walking more may decrease your sedentary time, it doesn't actually prevent weight gain, all you 10,000 steps a day folks. BYU researchers looked at 120 freshmen during their first six months of college, split them into three groups to investigate whether increasing the number of daily steps above 10,000 would indeed prevent weight and fat gain. One group of Kids was asked to walk 10,000 steps a day for six days a week over a long period of time. Another group was asked to walk about 12,500 steps a day, and a third group 15,000 steps a day. Then they were asked to wear pedometers, or pedometers if you prefer, 24 hours a day to track their steps. They also tracked caloric intake and weight. In the end, no matter how many steps the students walked, they still gained weight even if they were in the 15,000 steps a day group. Those participants gained on average about three and a half pounds over the course of the study period, with researchers noting that a, a weight gain is common during the first year of college. What do we always call it? The freshman 15, right? Usually I thought that was because of drinking, maybe in this case as well, but it is BYU. 
Exercise alone is not always the most effective way to lose weight. If you track steps, it might have a benefit in, in increasing physical activity, but our study showed it will not translate into maintaining weight or preventing weight gain. One side note on this study, and it actually supports this study, I had a great Scott not too long ago, and it revealed, I never knew this, the 10,000 number was actually a number designed by the Japanese back in the 60s when they were developing the pedometer. And they picked the 10,000 steps a day because it's a nice round number and they felt it was easily remembered. You remember 10,000 steps. But in the end, ultimately, 10,000 steps as a goal was merely a marketing ploy to sell the original pedometer. Bottom line, folks, whether it's the original intent of 10,000 steps, whether it's this BYU study, maybe, just maybe, you need to do more than walk around in order to lose weight. Great!